When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I am dead excited today because we are talking about a book. Uh, basically, I went and stalked this author because I read this book and loved it so much I wanted to talk to him about it. Lockie, who's with us? Yeah, we've got Ben Wilson. Uh, he's written a handful of books, well, at least a handful of books. Um, six critically acclaimed. He's re- received the Somerset Maugham Award. Um, we're here talking about heyday, uh, the dawn of the global age. But he's worked in television, broadcast on the radio. He's done. He writes regularly for the Times Telegraph, and he's from Suffolk or lives in Suffolk anyway, which means he's a good chap. <laughs> <laughs> Thank hey, you very ben. much for having me on. I'm delighted. This is great because Lockie's now got complete Suffolk envy because yeah. <laughs> last my accent slips. I apologise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did it slip the other day? You said something. You said a right bugger or something like that, and it came out very Suffolk. Uh, I don't know. It's usually after a couple of drinks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Unheard of you a couple of drinks and then no, right. never only down the pub. I, anyway, Heyday, Ben. I've used this book in my royal stuff. Basically, Heyday talks about why the 1850s, sort of 1850 to 1860-ish, changed the world, basically. And today we're going to, because it's such a big book and it covers such a big span, we're going to focus more on the British side of it. But why is this decade so significant? Well, it's it's significant, I saw, because it's a, a massive change of technology in the world. I, I, I put technology front and centre of this book um, because it's, as, they, as the Victorians at the time saw it and described it as the annihilation of time and space with the emphasis on time because this is the beginning of electronic communications. So the book starts in 1851, which is famous as the year of the Great Exhibition, but also of the first uh, cable, a telegraph cable that goes underwater, connects um, uh, Britain and France. And this was a sign that the world was going to change. 1851 marked this moment of change. It was Britain at the forefront as the leader of this, of this technology, but also the leader um, of a kind of idea of how, they, how Britain would reshape the world. So this is a time of immense self-confidence that um, Britain was going to reshape the world, not through force of arms and empire and the kind of things that we sort of see. There's this kind of utopian notion that Britain could reshape the world through um, free trade by knocking down the barriers to the mixing of ideas and people and goods. And that's the, the barriers of, 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 of nature, of oceans, of, uh, of, of, of traversing oceans much quicker through the power of steam and electricity, uh, of overcoming jungles and, um, and mountain ranges, and all those kind of you know, physical barriers that had prevented uh, sort of the intercourse of people, the flow of goods, the flow of capital, um, but also overcoming um, other barriers, the barriers of, of, as they saw it, tradition, hidebound societies, people wrapped up in superstition and ways of life that, that, that would be sort of blasted out of the way by technology. Um, so this is, a, this is a moment of Britain sort of looking back on it. Not, not all those things are good things, but at the time Britain saw it as, a, as its civilizing mission in the world to spread these ideas peacefully through, through free trade 
Uh, other p- people around the world had very different ideas. They saw this as aggressive. Uh, but for Britain, they saw this peaceful uh, and a part of a Christian mission to civilize the world and to, to break through into countries like China and Japan, modernize uh, countries like India, uh, use India as a sort of test bed for the rejuvenating uh, moral power of modernity, the spread of, of, of um, electronic communications and steam, uh, steam power, um, and uh, covering, going over mountain ranges, connecting parts of the world that have been separated um, for, for millennia uh, to bring them into the global economy. And that would, 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 would be the civilizing mission. So we have Britain, in, I guess, but pre-1851 feeling quite bad about its position in the world, feeling it was coming out of a period of famine in Ireland, uh, of momentous political battles over the Corn Laws, um, at a time of kind of, of, of shrinking confidence. And then suddenly with the introduction of technology, uh, and, uh, and sort of belting the world in these kind of communication systems and spreading people through migration to Australia, New Zealand, um, to America, uh, and connecting the global economy that Britain was suddenly at the forefront of, um, of, of the most advanced ideas in the world. It, 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 they saw in, Looking around the world, they saw a Europe that was where revolution had failed, where democratic and nationalist ideas had been defeated in 1848 and the autumn after that, and an America that was in political crisis um, and and riven by divides over slavery and and, and its expansion west. The, the, the Britain was with its ideas of of of, of, of laissez-faire and free trade and liberal economic policies. Was gonna, was gonna bestride the world and, and spread these ideas. So there's suddenly this awakening of confidence and sort of self-belief in the 1850s that, that I, I saw doing this book as a sort of time, a unique time in British history of, of Britain being involved in the world and having a degree of influence over the world that it never had again, even though it had a bigger empire later in the 19th century. Its kind of influence, its soft power influence, was immense in the 1850s, and its and its sort of desire to to to, to change the world. Um, uh, towards the end of the century, this becomes a period of, of it becomes much more bloody and, and much more driven by war and conquest and sort of ideas of imposing the, these ideas by force if people won't accept them, uh, which I think will come on to that sort of the, the darker side of this. But at the, the time, it, it felt like Thomas Hardy, the novelist, called it a transition point in human history of, of a sudden awakening of science. So all these things are kind of, I think, a kind of forgotten period in British history, because it's much more the 1850s, if you're Chinese or Indian or American or, or countries like Italy and Germany, these are, these are times of kind of national consolidation, times when those countries came into, into being. So they're sort of remembered, the 1850s is remembered more as a sort of transitional decade. So my aim in the heyday was to show how transitional this was for Britain as well. Is there a way of sort of explaining what the British Empire kind of was before this transitional period? I mean, I, I understand the kind of technology and the yeah. optimism coming in. I mean, what are we, what are we moving from? To, to to move into that into that world, well, the, the British I mean, Empire specifically. The British Empire was, you know, it 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 had um, it had consolidated its power in India, most obviously, and it had a chain of of ports and, and naval bases around the world. The emphasis on the British Empire in the eighteen fifties was less about territory and more about influence. So the, the the places that it was most interested in opening up were places like um, China, Burma. Japan using soft power without the bother and expense of um, 
of, of imperial conquest. The trouble was that the more you're going to get involved in trying to do that for a soft power way, you end up um, following it up with military power. So the, for all the talk about peace and spreading these things um, incrementally, uh, it became necessary to intervene by force. In, India is probably the classic example, right? It was run by a company uh, up until the, 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 the end of the Indian Mutiny Rebellion in 1857. Um, and there was an idea that it could be opened up through sort of the power of, of modern technologies. When India rebelled, uh, it was partly in response to this. This um, There were many causes for it, but one of the main causes was this attempt to very, very quickly modernise India, and then you get an awakening of imperial uh, desires because of the way that uh, the campaigns in India were reflected in the British press and this kind of awakening of a kind of imperial idea. So you can see very quickly how a sort of idea of um, let's all change the world through peaceful influence suddenly becomes a much more hardening of imperial um, uh, imperial desires. And partly that's done through the press, which the press was becoming much more powerful at this time it was connecting across the world it was able to by the end of the decade with the, the increase of telegraphs and things like that it was almost able to report stories in real time and there's an explosion in the popular press especially the kind of more um papers that appeal to the jingoism of britain so one thing follows the other the kind of um we've, we've seen this in our own time almost the way that you know we see a kind of liberalizing and kind of utopian idea about technology can lead to a darker side of that you definitely have that in the 1850s that um that the technologies that are supposed to sort of enlighten and empower the world sort of become sort of tools for hardening sort of imperial uh, sort of imperial ambition and and and, and bring it into people's lives in, in a much more sort of visceral, tangible way. You know that people were able to experience news stories in a way that they never had done before because it was so immediate and so quick in terms of getting stories to London and and so vivid. So there's a sort of there's a big, big explosion in the in the popular press, particularly the Sunday press, that really concentrates on these kind of minted, newly minted heroes in places like India and Africa and then in China and places like that. And an idea that force is the kind of necessary ingredient in um, in extending British power, which was very different at the at the beginning of the, the 1850s when it, it was, you know, it was there was an idea that the, the ideas were sort of organically progress by the end of the decade it's it's done at the end of a bayonet and it's done by by the by by the other side of new technologies which are things like the enfield rifle the kind of the imperial enforcer telegraphs as an instrument of war rather than of peace um explosive shells um colt revolvers all these things which were were, were part and parcel of this sort of technological revolution make the job of empire much easier railroads Railways going into 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 formerly intractable parts of land. New drugs that um, that anti-malarial drugs and things like that, that 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 open these things up. So this opening up of the world also opens up the, the world for imperialism and for for troops to move around and and um, and, and peoples that have previously been able to resist um, the onward march of imperialism, warrior tribes around the world, indigenous peoples, people like you know strong strong countries like Japan can't resist that though that sort of new force of technology of steam powered ships and artillery shell explosive artillery shells so um yeah this becomes a way that the whole world has opened up for for much more a strengthening of empire and of and, and a defensive trade routes trade routes don't don't always come sort of organically and sort of by um people sort of willing compliance they kind of suddenly there's they have to be guarded by ships and military bases so there's a so 
there's a sort of logic here that, you know, what seems to be peaceful is then backed up by by main force and by Britain's kind of power in the world expressed through the Royal Navy and um, and, and things like that. I am. I'm so lucky. I got to go to Telegraph Island, which is this period, isn't it? So it's this yeah. tiny little island. You have to go. You have to catch a flight from Muscat for half an hour to the middle of nowhere, and then go round on a boat, which takes forever. Um, and it's where the the uh, where the saying "round the bend" comes from, because you literally sail around this bend on the Musandam Peninsula to this tiny little island. And there's the ruins of a British telegraph station, which relayed the signal from London to Bombay, um, that was only in action for about five years. But literally, it was so in the middle of nowhere that the guys went loopy because there was nothing. I mean, it's beautiful, but there is nothing there. You literally swimming. Great. Fish. Great. That's it. Nothing else. Yeah. Um, it's a, I think it's a real example of how we really did get everywhere in that period. We did. And uh, one of the things that go back to the idea of empire as well and those kind of outposts. Uh, what I found interesting in this book was in terms of Britain's in, interest, they, they weren't necessarily places that they were going to um, conquer. Um, so places like Nicaragua became important, or the Caucasus in um, in um, uh, it, it's part of the Russian Empire. There's these little sort of parts of the world that suddenly become strategically important. So Nicaragua was important because it was contested between Britain and America, and it was part of a trade, part of the route that connected the eastern seaboard of America with California, where the gold rush was going on. So suddenly Britain and America come to blows over Nicaragua because they both want to control this vital strategic part of the world without actually adding it to the empire. So that's a kind of classic example, I think, of an imperial sort of a hidden thing that we don't, when we look at the kind of the map of the British emperor in, it, in, it, in its pomp, you forget places like Nicaragua being actually really important and a flashpoint between Britain and America. So Britain was very kind of interested in you know, places like you know, little telegraph stations suddenly mm. becoming strategically important. And places like, you know, the, um, one of the kind of the linking parts of the world, as I saw it, was, um, was a little you know, rocky outcrop of Newfoundland, which was where ships would go past from Liverpool to New York. And they would drop off canisters of news in the water, so they could be telegraphed from this kind of barren, rocky part of Newfoundland, which which had no kind of strategic interest before, apart from the fishermen who lived there. Suddenly, this becomes one of the linking parts of the world. So you'd find news stories saying St John's, Newfoundland, meaning that that was up to date knowledge that you could bridge these gaps by dropping off news in canisters. Suddenly, it develops this kind of you know sort of place of critical importance, a kind of link in the link in the world that um, that you could move news faster. And people were really interested in this kind of abridgment of time. You know that you could you could get the news sort of fresh. Um, so the news would be chucked off ships in canisters, canisters off Ireland, so they could be raced back by quick steamers and then telegraphed from the sort of you know um, remote telegraph stations in Ireland would get to London super quick, and people would would fight to, to get, you know, to get the news and invest vast amounts of money in it, including um, Julius Reuter, who was the man who was kind of seen as the, the master of time. He, he, his skill, he built his fortune on on closing these gaps of having, you know, steamships ready to grab the news, literally fish it out of the water and, and, and telegraph it to London, move markets, sell newspapers. This was the sort of the great sort of the, the, the biggest change at this time. And the thing that connected Britain to the world was kind of being at the epicenter of this kind of news an information revolution, this flow of, 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 of knowledge and data that was going around the world. Britain wanted to be kind of at the, at the centre of it and position it the, itself at the centre of it. It, it. You know, there was this feeling that the world would 
sort of the, the information flows would change the world. And if and, and if you could, you know, the sort of the sort of empire, it was a sort of empire of news and knowledge and 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 and, and infrastructure, um, which people were most interested in at the time. Um, so as I say, a lot of this was short lived. It's you know, it's a prelude to a kind of great sort of splurge of imperialism towards the end of the century as a sort of as, as a competition. But the 1850s has a very different quality to it, I think. Just at the head of it all, um, just because this is my wheelhouse, royal family's image has overgone uh, the 1850s is this whole period of we're going from Queen Victoria's loony uncles and everyone going, what's the point, to this domesticity and the nine children and Prince Albert trying to paint the royal family as a sort of example for other families. Like, we all know what was going on in the background, much like today. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it he definitely their their image gets a massive overhaul at this period doesn't it yeah it does and it, it, it it's it's a relative well, the reason we forget about it in a way is exactly for that reason it was quite a domestic time it was a it was a period of sort of relative political tranquility in britain um domestically britain was very involved in the rest of the world so a lot of the kind of the storm political storms of the 1840s give way to a to a to a sort of you know a calmer period in Britain and a, and a, and a time of increasing prosperity. And I think that yeah, definitely the royal family is probably at the heart of, of cultivating that image of, of Britain being a very serene and peaceful place that doesn't have the storms and, and and controversies of other countries. I mean, if you look at around the world, what's happening in France? You have the rise of of, of Napoleon the Third. Um, you have a greater authoritarianism in other monarchies and countries in in, in Russia. In, you know, around the world, the, the Britain. You know, the royal family seemed to signify this kind of sort of you know this this image that Britain was cultivating of itself as a as a as a as a country that had cracked a lot of the problems. It, it hadn't been lured into democracy. Um, it hadn't been lured towards to, 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 to tyranny. It's sort of you know the, the British. No, war, Nicholas the First going crazy at the helm. It's... Yeah, exactly. This was a uh, yeah. This was um, it was sort of yeah. It was creating this illusion. It was it was it was creating a kind of you know a sort of template that it could export around the world. You know, it was consciously trying to do that to export a kind of British way of life. With, with definitely with, the, with with Victoria at the head of that, and the and the sort of you know idealized domestic domestic domesticity was important um and creating this kind of idea of you know there was a, a lot of books and things like that about the ideal woman uh as well as the ideal man the ideal woman supported this man who was going out into the world to kind of conquer the sort of the storms of uh, of a of a kind of ultra liberal laissez-faire world that was dominated by market forces and there's an idea of manliness and muscular christianity and, and women were there was a greater move for women to become more uh of a of a domestic kind of goddess in a way there was plenty of stuff like that and and with you know with victoria as the figurehead of that it was a it was a very sort of matriarchal kind of concept of of, of, of manly men going out into the world it's, you know it's, it's, this is a time when the beard becomes popular this was a time when middle the middle classes were taking a kind of greater stake in empire and at a time of kind of mismanaged aristocratic mismanagement during the uh, the Crimean War, this, the, the the heroes of the Indian Mutiny, and this was this was seen as a glorious time for, for Britain, and it was seen as a glorious time for the British middle classes. Um, and a lot of the heroes of of the um, of, of the Indian Mutiny Rebellion on the British side were were, were middle class men who sported beards, and that became the kind of Mm. symbol of um uh, 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 of manliness this is also the decade of samuel smiles self-help 
uh, this idea of you go, you stand on your own two feet, you go out, you subdue the forces of the world, uh, and it, and it's a kind of middle class. Thing. So we have a kind of yeah, you have the royal family aping the middle class, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a, this is seen as a time of um, of of middle class triumph. This is the triumph of, of the engineer, the inventor, um, the businessman, uh, which contrasts very strongly with other times. And it was it was seen as this kind of this symbolising this change, this transition from a kind of aristocratic society. This is how it's reflected, anyway. The, the truth might be very different, but this is certainly how it's sort of reflected. That the sort of that this is an idea where character is important. Um, not birth that, 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 um, you know, your, your manly or womanly character determines who you are in the world, not your, not your birth. And that's because this is a kind of entrepreneurial society, entrepreneurial in the sense of, um, of inventing stuff and, 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 um, uh, prospering, but also entrepreneurial in the sense that people were going and settling abroad and people were seeking their fortunes in places like the gold fields of Australia or in a, a more kind of agrarian society like New Zealand and exporting this kind of this idea of British character in societies that weren't dominated by the aristocracy. So there's a sort of valorization of that kind of frontier society, men with beards, men who kind of went out and, um, uh, and subdued the wilderness as they saw it and sort of cultivated land that, 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 you know, made fertile land that had been sort of neglected for millennia. The huge ecological damage comes in the, in the train of this, of course, but, it, but this was, this was the ethos of the time. This was the ethos of that mid Victorian point, which was a, which was a go out there. The world is yours to conquer. And that's a kind of entrepreneurial kind of thing that everyone sort of held in their destiny. Um, you know, their future, if you wanted to, to, to go and do that, if you wanted to go and start again in New Zealand, this was like a blank canvas. Um, as long as you kind of went and kind of created a kind of a version of a better version of Britain that wasn't so cluttered with, um, with the kind of the relics of history and, and sort of entrenched privilege abroad, you know, all this is, you know, um, is fantasy to a certain extent, but it was very much the character of the time to, to extol those, those virtues. Um, so that's why it's fascinating. It's this sort of whole world opens up for people, um, kind of outside Britain and a kind of, it's almost like a sort of redemption that Britain had become crowded and industrial and messy. Mm. But here was a time, you know, New Zealand, British virtues would, 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 would be planted there and flourish or in Canada. Um, this was, this is what I mean about Britain's kind of influencing the world. This is about Britain in the world and a relatively sort of tranquil time in Britain that it could, it could sort of fundamentally change other, other places and, and, and change itself. There's a sort of bounce back from empire, from this kind of informal empire, from this sort of settler frontier society that it would kind of rejuvenate Britain as well at the same time. Um, as I say, a lot of these ideas were quite short lived, but that's why I call it heyday because it was the hey, they were seen as a heyday. It was seen as this kind of time of kind of awakening, um, uh, and, uh, and rejuvenation in all kinds of different ways after, after times of economic dislocation and, um, and, and political strife. This was a sort of a time where Britain was going to sort of take off and, and change the world. And Britain was very, very active all around the world. Um, and that that became part of a very ingrained in in our national culture, and it probably pop, and has probably never left that idea of, sort of standing on our two feet and idea of a global Britain really comes from this time, this kind of popular popularization of these ideas as Britain being very active in the world and having having something to contribute. I'm glad you mentioned Australia, I and mean, I was just about to ask about you know places like that. I've got a 
pages of notes in front of me because I'm looking at the Australian Army in the First World War at the moment. Mm. And, you know, the old, the old cliche about they're all six foot four, bronzed, athletic, strong men mm. kind of still persist with them. But that kind of fits in, I suppose, with, with what you're saying. It's not all good, though, uh, is it around? I mean, uh, what about wars? I mean, the the yeah. most obvious one that kind of springs to mind is Crimea. Um, I mean, is this the end of an era in terms of warfare and the beginning of a new one? I mean, because you know the American Civil War, which which you know kind of follows this decade, we, we we're seeing the beginning of an industrialized warfare. Yeah, we? and the, absolutely, uh, you know, the telegraph becomes you know very quickly goes from being a symbol of peace to an instrument of war. Um, the, the the telegraph was bitterly resented in 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 India from a British point of view, from a very busybody kind of reformist uh, thing on the part of the, the British governors of India that they saw, you know, that, that, that India could be modernized very quickly and transformed. In, for people in India, things like the telegraph were, were, were signs of oppression because they were oppressive. They were, they commanded troop movements. They, um, you know, they consolidated power in a radical way. The ability, you know, railways and telegraphs consolidated power so sort of fundamentally that they were the first things that were attacked during the, the, the Indian mutiny. Um, the, 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 the thing about the Crimean War was that Britain saw it sort of, you know, again, a sort of busybody thing of clearing up the world and making it a better place for trade was one of the barriers to that was the Russian Empire, which was seen as hopelessly backward and, a, and, a, and standing in the way and a threat to the British Empire. And the Russians did saw themselves as a sort of alternate model to the sort of rapacious British capitalism that, that Russia had a, a different role to play in the world. So there's a sort of massive kind of geopolitical uh, implications of the Crimean War and the British thought it would be a, if we're armed with all their new technologies and things like that they saw this kind of what they promoted as a kind of righteous war against um against Russia um didn't turn out it got ground down didn't it outside Sebastopol um but and, uh, and also the other sort of thing about the, the Crimean War which I found it found interesting was the the huge victories that Russia had in in terms of becoming a, a, an Asian power Managed to carve out huge, a huge Asian empire for itself, itself at the same time as British, the Britain was trying to carve out a kind of a sphere of influence for itself in the Pacific around Korea and China and Japan. This is a forgotten aspect of of the Crimean War. I think it's global character. And this is what my book is about to an extent is all these kind of interconnected things. There was also a a connection between the Crimean War and the Caribbean. Um, the, 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 um, uh, the America, there was a fault line between Britain and America, the United States of America, during the Crimean War over Cuba and places like that. So this is a real sort of global war and, 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 and the, the world, this kind of intermeshing of the world had made it, um, made, made these flashpoints much more likely. Um, but yes, you're right. This is a, this is a time of, of war, the, the, the kind of utopian sort of idea about peace that sort of is manifest at the beginning of the 1850s very quickly becomes a time of kind of near constant war as Britain is sort of dragged into wars and conflicts and spats in, um, uh, in, in the Crimea, in India, in, in, in China, uh, and, and sort of proxy wars of the United States in the 1850s alone. There were three very close calls of wars of America. The Britain was beginning to throw its power around. As much as it talked about peace, there was, there was a huge kind of upsurge in jingoism. And the, the, the eventual sort of, uh, the eventual, um, suppressing of the Indian Mutiny Rebellion awakes this kind of demon in the British kind of public opinion that it can use its force and its power 
that uh, that it, it's it's victory over the kind of the insurgents in India was partly due to technology. It was partly due to a much you know uh, sophisticated use of telegraphs, direct troops around as, as Britain consolidated its forces, use of railways, and use of exploding shells and and, and weapons. So the, the 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 victory over the Indian insurgents automatically leads to uh, a war in China. And then a, a military kind of intimidation of Japan. The 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 by kind of uh, this imperial project could then be exported around Asia. So there's all these kind of little you know these kind of consequences that sort of bounce little cannonball off each other. That all these kind of things, Crimean War, Britain's attitude to America, to South America, the Caribbean, all kind of interrelate. And um and 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 the Crimean War, the, the strides that the Russia makes in in Asia. Uh, and in Central Asia and in China forces the Britain, British to kind of, to then accelerate its kind of, its kind of invasions of, of China to coerce them into becoming part of the British world. Um, so yeah, this, what starts as peace becomes a fight between very different competing views of the world, uh, with Russia really as a kind of promoting itself as a bulwark to the kind of, um, what they see as a sort of the criminal and, um, and uh and untoward efforts of britain to 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 get its to put its finger into every pie around the world using its sort of its industrial dominance and its um its dominance in shipping and things like that to, to influence the world um let's talk about using power and influence and knowledge for good there are huge strides in health and sanitation in this era aren't there including yeah. the point where the um connect is it the point where they make the connection about what causes cholera and therefore, it just changes the game in terms of um, people's health and disease, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking uh, John Snow in, in, in making the connection between the water pump in Soho and, um, and 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 cholera. Yeah, this is this is the age of the Great Stink of London, where the Thames <laughs> was, was turned into an open sewer. Did and they again, have to? Um, I read that they had to at the Houses of Parliament. They soaked sheets bed sheets and like bed covers in sweet smelling stuff and like had to hang them at the windows because it was so bad it was so bad yeah and they were there was a sort of moment in the house of commons where mps are kind of covering their faces as this sort of stench from the thames kind of overwhelms parliament saying uh you know we kind of you know we've put telegraphs around the world we've 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 subdued india uh, well, can't yeah. we just sort out the Thames? Yeah. And the minister stands up and says, "Well, you know, we're 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 liberals. You know, we don't. It's not the power of the British government to tell people what they should do with the Thames." So this was the kind of um, this is kind of what happens when you're so wedded to these laissez-faire ideals that you know you can you know uh, it's sort of this ideology of free trade and, and non-interference, and you can't even you know you can't even bear to be in Parliament. The, the, and so this is a this is a sort of yes, yeah, this is a sort of totemic battle really between what what is the legitimate power of government in, um, in keeping people alive and stopping this the, the capital the financial capital of the world as it promotes itself, stop it being such a sort of dingy, horrible, dangerous place that kills people. Because you've got uh, the rookeries and things still, haven't you? At this point, you've got the rookeries. You got this is the age of um, uh, Manchester as Co- Dickens's Coke Town. Um, Vast sort of pollution, misery, the growth of of of, of slums and d- danger and disease and things like that. But I mean, there's uh, there's there's then these kind of the great kind of works of um, of um, public sanitation becomes a huge issue in not only in in Britain but in around the world. There's a great a great um, story of um, the raising of Chicago 
which uh, was literally jacked up, building at a time to fit sewage pipes underneath. So the whole city was raised up by um, by, by thousands of um, uh, jacks, hand jacks, and sort of hotels and whole blocks would be risen up to put pipes underneath. This is yeah the age of the, the hospitalization of Paris as well. Um, so you know an idea that yeah technology can be enhanced to kind of engineer retrofit cities in the case of London to make to make it more sanitary and actually here was another if we're talking about barriers the barriers of disease are sort of no less than the, the barriers of oceans and the mountain ranges and the, the sort of the, the, the great distances that separate parts of the world that Britain's interested in you know the, the problems are also at home and this is also a barrier to progress and it's sort of it got in the way of this idea of, of um of Britain being at the vanguard of progress, it was a massive, massive embarrassment. This is an age of um, the beginnings of, you know, public parks, you know, places like Victoria Park in East London, uh, preservation of um, of Hampstead Heath, to create these lungs for the city, uh, and you know, above ground and below ground, which is sort of the great sort of um, sewage works, sewage pipes, and things like that, pumping stations. Um, I think that's part of, you know, what, how people saw themselves at this time, that it was, um, that it was, uh, there was, it was a time of, of breakthrough and progress and you should, should live up to those ideals of, of science. Science was becoming a kind of, a kind of, a, a sort of leading, uh, you know, a, 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 a leading kind of thing in society because it was progressive, because there was this idea of a kind of infinite progress. And that's what I want to get about, get across about the 1850s was this idea that, um, you know, that, that there was a, the, the, the progress was exponential. The 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 the, the, the whole sort of riddle of it, you know everything was going to change. This was a kind of a frontier in time, as, as Hardy said. And 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 sorting out your sewage was was a big part of that. And indeed, well, that is- very very fast industrialization that was going on, and not only in Britain but but everywhere else. The the the, 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 the kind of the growth of um, of global trade was fueling the growth of big cities, and that they had to be dealt with before they became too big and grew too fast like a Manchester or Chicago which was growing at phenomenal rates and immiserating the people that lived there and causing causing these horrendous um uh infant mortality very very low um life expectancy and so a, a place like Manchester it was only about 26 compared to 40 in the countryside um so yeah it was very obvious you know and very high it was sort of a lot of a high level of of um of aware of, of, of journalism about how dangerous and how uh, and how you know on the back of prosperity you were also creating these kind of hell holes of of cities that that, that, that there was no kind of way of of, of, um, of governing them or uh, controlling them unless you put in some kind of planning so that becomes that becomes bigger it's a sort of back away from this kind of this sort of um, uh, this sort of idea that, that the market would sort out market forces would sort out everything it suddenly became very apparent that they didn't. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I have to say as well, bigger ideas. 1859, isn't it? The origin of species. Yeah. Yeah. There's all these kind of breakthroughs at the time. The more I kind of looked into this book, the more this age was crowded with with big breakthroughs like that. The origin of the species kind of comes at the end of the decade. At the beginning of the decade, it's the telegraph. But there's these, you know, a number of of, of big breakthroughs. And the um, the, the, the this, 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 this sort of you know this this idea of, of peace conquering the world at the beginning of the century does get taken over by war and things like that. By 1859, the, the publication of the Origin of the Species is a, obviously a big breakthrough for science, but it, the way it was used in the context of the time of of um, the rise of, of countries that would rival Britain, the United States, Germany, France, um, around the around the world, this kind of consolidation of, of big countries into much into 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 places that would challenge Britain economically, and the world had a very different idea of how the world should work. We've seen it was seen as a time of of the survival of the fittest. The countries had to arm, get bigger empires because they would face a kind of uh, a, a, a kind of decline. Um, they would they would unless they ca- ca- carried on surging forward, arming, becoming more powerful, then they would lose out in this race. So, the, the origin of the species comes at a you know at a at a kind of critical time in kind of global politics because this is the beginning of. Um, uh, this is the beginning of um, uh, uh, the sort of America's descent into civil war. It's the beginning of the unification of Germany and Italy. Um, and uh, and it says that the world is a bigger, darker, more dangerous place towards that, that, that decade. And, and Darwin's ideas play into that, the way they're kind of used and, and abused by people. It becomes a reflection of in the 1860s as, as a much more as a time of, of of harder nose struggle and 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 and, um, and and countries arming against each other and, and 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 racing each other in industrial and military terms. It's a time of real kind of intellectual soul searching as well. One of the mm. one of the things I like about this period is there's a lot coming in from the Middle East as well, and you know alongside um, Origin of Species coming out, you also have kind of translated cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia, you know, teaching us about the Great Flood and the kind of the the, the, the two don't necessarily. Mesh, I go, I go off topic a little bit. I'm supposed to be asking about things like railway stations. <laughs> no, and, but it's um... fine because it's that whole we were talking before we came on air, like a load of nerds about the dinosaurs. And yeah. one of the major points of De- Deborah Cadbury's, Cadbury's book, which we were talking about, uh, The Dinosaur Hunters, is that the argument between, oh my God, if there's evolution from dinosaurs and there was something here before us, then the Bible's not real. And that trying to balance uh, the religious beliefs and tradition with this advancing idea that before we were there um there were big walking roaring lizards um around which people were it's messing with their heads in this period isn't it yeah absolutely and it's kind of the opening up of a lot of the world you know a vast amount of territory right so this is an age when people surge across america the opening up of of of, of the middle west of the midwest of America, the sort of central part of America, and going out to California and Oregon and places like that, just by the sheer force of people, the the, the, the amount of people who are travelling across those lands, wreaking kind of havoc on indigenous peoples and on, on the local ecologies, but also opening up places for 
big dis- you know, discoveries, including dinosaur bones, because their people are, are, are farming and exploiting and mining new places. There's a, so there is a kind of a massing of, of, of knowledge that comes with that. Um, and a sort of, you know, a, a sort of heightened desire to ex- exploit, you know, newly opened lands to their fullest and furthest extent. Um, and it's, you know, there is a, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of interconnection of things. So gold being discovered in California in the late 1840s, and then gold being discovered in, um, in, in Australia in, in 1851, um, means there's a lot more gold in the world for sure, but it means there's a bigger movement of people. And then on top of people, there's a race to, to, to develop faster ships, like clipper ships and things like that. To, um, to, to bring goods to people, get people out to the gold fields faster, to bring them commodities. So and those things become permanent. They're fixed. Gold has this big multiplier effect. It's a, a sort of symbol of the time, a symbol of this sort of hope and prosperity that's going on. But also it brings people to places much quicker um, and, 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 and establishes trade routes. that uh, and, and there's a much more of a... When you've got gold thrown into the equation, you've got a much more... You know, the, 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 the speed connecting the world has a much higher premium on it so you get a, a connect all these interconnected movements around the world and movements of shipping fast ships and things like that do open up vast tracts of the world for exploitation so it's no surprise that you get a kind of on the back of that a discovery and in a, a of, of 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 things like dinosaur bones but of, of of new properties of new kind of um medicinal plants of uh, other people's history as well like the cuneiform tablets and things like that there's this kind of exploit open up get in there you know that was the kind of so the motivating forces of this time was to 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 to, to bring this information and to sort of catalog it and um and find it and exploit it there's this sort of yeah sort of manic kind of like yeah let's 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 find out what's in in the world as the world is opening up and becoming more exploitable and interconnected i suppose that does then bring us into a discussion on modern London and infrastructure and things like rail and underground and the creation of the modern city. And this period is, is crucial in that as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'd, um, one of the kind of the, um, the, 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 the sort of railway revolution starts in Britain much earlier in the 1840s, right? That's a sort of great thing. Britain brings the railway to the rest of the world in the 1850s, really. It's British investment mainly you know that the, the amount of, of british money that's sloshing around the world is extraordinary that's that's what brings britain into the all parts of the globe as a major investor in railroads in in, in illinois or in latin america or you know in in russia or all around the world there's sort of british money finance but also british technology and know-how um but it yeah it does it fundamentally reshapes cities it, there's a sort of there's there's the, the great exhibition happens in London in, in 1851 with the huge millions of visitors going. And that's only possible in Britain because there's a sophisticated rail network. Uh, and people sort of commented on this the use of telegraph and railway going together, that this weight of traffic of people wanting to go to, to London was managed by a sophisticated, you know, a control of telegraphs managing a kind of weight of, of rail traffic coming into London. Um so yeah, and then you you begin to get the, the the first underground stations in the 1860s in London. So and yeah, there's the a... ideas going round for the underground in the 50s are 
batshit though, aren't they? Like, like <laughs> yeah. One of them was like an elevated railway system, completely enclosed, with but see-through, so yeah. that you could ride around from like you know how like Canary Wharf, you ride into the complex on the on the rail, don't you? It was yeah. going to be like that all over London, beautiful glass enclosed. It uh, God knows what it was going to cost. It got. Say, it sounds like the DLR. Yeah, yeah, pretty much a large scale DLR with big <laughs> steam trains, um, and yeah, I have no idea what that get, that, you, yeah, that in get itself, as far as costing that. Yeah, that in itself gets to the heart of the 1850s because people thought anything was possible. Yeah. I mean, this is a time of you know huge uh, technology was going to reshape. You would have those glass tunnels sort of conveying people through London. This you know that was confidence was the the main thing. As much as we talk about gold and telegraphs. All those things add together and and create this kind of buoyant atmosphere that that everything all problems can be solved. We can have these fantastic cities. We can do this. So a lot of things don't come off. Um, but people were investing lots of money in very kind of out there schemes. I mean the 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 telegraph connecting Britain and America, which which was a huge deal, connecting money markets and commodity markets across the Atlantic would have been huge. And there's vast amounts of money that are just thrown at this table when no one knows how it works or how it, it's, it's feasible. Um, and they just go and do it, you know, and, and I think that's, that's what marks out the 1850s from a lot of the other parts of the 19th centuries was just sheer enthusiasm and belief that, that, that people could do anything. Um, think, um, that you've mentioned it a couple of times. The one thing that epitomizes this belief and this confidence and this exuberance of this decade is the Great Exhibition. Uh, yeah. For people who don't know, what was it and what did it look like? I mean, it must have been incredible to be there. Yeah, it was. And that kind of inaugurates this age in a way because it's, it, it was, it was a way of kind of, it started out because Britain was feeling pretty bad about itself and wanted to showcase some of its technologies before you know, try and find a market in the world. But in the end, it becomes a sort of sort of jamboree, a kind of celebration of, of, of the opening up of the globe with Britain at its head, symbolising that. These great glass structures that were erected above the great elm trees in, in Hyde Park and an invitation to people from around the world to come and, and, and demonstrate, you know, to, to display their wares, their technologies and put them alongside each other. So it became, in the end, what they called a festival of free trade. If you bring everything together, you create competition, you create imitation, you create collaboration um, that people would see and learn and, and learn from each other. It's a sort of, you know, it was a bit sort of physically bringing together as they saw it, all the good things of the world and putting them next to each other. And it was a kind of gorgeous display of machines that move, clocks, fabrics from around the world, um, new inventions, toys, uh, sort of wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was rammed, every rammed day. with people, and it was, and it was, uh, it was this that really kind of in Britain changed the mood because it it was it did come out of a time of very of great sort of depression and, and national soul searching, and suddenly it's like the London Olympics in in in, in twenty twelve that something that was seen as being might be quite embarrassing suddenly becomes this enormous triumph that no one was suspecting, and it has this publicity around the world. Um, people come and crowd in and see how the world's changing and how and what the rest of the world looks like. It's kind of not where it's heavily curated, obviously, but it sort of it showed this kind of world that was there to to to, to be exploited. Um, and the range of stuff there, hundreds of thousands of different exhibits from lumps of rock and ore to um, the latest machines and inventions. Um, visited. I wish I'd seen the dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs were 
Yeah. Yeah, they were later, and when they when they moved the site, the the, the glass things to to Sydenham, and it was this great sort of dinosaur you know, theme park that attracted. But loads. they would we'd look at them now, and they'd look ridiculous because they, they didn't awesome. actually know what dinosaurs look like. But I'd love to see them. Yeah, but yeah, no, that was another kind of yeah. All those kind of exhibits were were signs of the world opening up, whether they were dinosaurs or or the latest gadgets. They were signs that you know we are kind of masters of the world. We can kind of control and exploit and um and do everything to the world but yeah I, I, it was this yeah it was this the publicity that the great exhibition got around the world that really britain saw itself suddenly being at the center of the uh, of the world and it and it changed it and it's it's the, the the thing it does is change the mood and the temper of the time so fundamentally that what, what was just a sort of trade fair becomes a kind of a living symbol of what of what the world was becoming and how um, you could go and play with telegraphs. You know, the Queen went and sort of sent messages on t- telegraphs and was kind of amazed by how quickly. And, and it coincides pretty much. It's the same year as a lot of things happened in 1851, but it's the same year as the, that that cable that connects Britain and France and shows that, that submarine telegraphs are possible. Uh, it's better, that's based on a kind of a, a material that's only just being exploited called gutta percha, which is a which is the thing that makes telegraph. It's the only thing that can make telegraphs waterproof that, that allows you to, to send messages underneath ocean beds. The gutter percha is everywhere. It's all over the Great Exhibition. It's this, it's, it comes from Malaysia. It's this rubber that hardens and then can be shaped. And it was used in all kinds of, um, industrial processes. It was used in just typing gutter percha to eBay and you'll find a world of Victorian knickknacks, buttons, brooches, bits of furniture. Um, they were used as a substitute for whale bones, as hoops and skirts. Gus How Perch much of this stuff have you bought off eBay? I've <laughs> quite a lot. So my my, my favourite bit is, is a, a medallion of made of gutta percha showing um, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was also a great hero of the age of this man, and sort of takes history by the scruff of the neck and, and unifies Italy. So I got the kind of the man of the age, kind of with, in, in the in the material of the age. But Gutterpatch is kind of forgotten. But a lot of um, you know huge factories in East London that that produce this sort of sticky, smelly stuff that was bought from the, the Malayan Peninsula um, and used as a kind of you know this was the kind of this was a sort of wonder material that could be used. To change the world through kind of transatlantic or under sub oceanic um, telegraph things, making knowledge instantaneous, but also had all these kind of domestic and industrial processes. So there's a lot of kind of gutter percha being displayed at this brand new material. Um, it's kind of this rubber that would change the world was being displayed at the Great Exhibition. There was also, I mean, one of, one of the other things that was displayed there, which also sort of changed the world, was the cult, cult revolver. Um, uh, has a fundamental impact on settler societies that this was a, a mass-produced easily cleaned and maintained weapon that personal weapon that could be used to open up great parts of the world so i mean there's all kinds of stuff there it's this kind of massive kind of um you know deluge of you know, sensory experience of, of modernity what's interesting also is is what i found interesting about the great exhibition was the way that these gadgets would were dressed up as were made to look really old you know so you'd have telegraphs which were the kind of you know the brand new technology world-changing technology that people were kind of utterly amazed by in 1851 that you know, that the telegraphs would we were poised to just change that way the world worked but you'd, you'd make it look like an antique bit of furniture i mean i love that about that that sort of time that it was um that they kind of masked this kind of the, the white heat of technology in sort of um in sort of mahogany 
uh, <laughs> encasings to make, make <laughs> the cold and the uh, stuff like that. But yeah, the great exhibition and, and the sheer number of people that went there and it became this kind of and it, it was widely imitated in in, in it was a, a exposition universelle in Paris later on. That this becomes a kind of way of of, of putting place, places on the map and, and, and having and, and the beginning of really the beginning of mass tourism. Thomas Cook. Yeah, he's already done temperance outings, but he but, but, but he begins to make his fortune by by bringing people to the great exhibition on package holidays, so they can you know all inclusive holiday to go and see this this great kind of work, this kind of unfolding of of, of the future in front of people's eyes. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it really sets the, the the tone for the decade. This 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 great event, and as I say, it really sours by the end of the decade. But at the beginning, it's it's, it's shown as that this is a, that people said this was the greatest event in the history of the world. You know, we sort of look back on it as because there's been lots of other sort of similar big kind of parties and things like that. But at the time, it was people said this this was the thing that would change the world. They said, whilst the, when the pyramids get sort of worn down by the elements and disappear, people will remember the Great Exhibition and they'll forget about the pyramids. <laughs> I mean, that was the level of arrogance and kind of um, uh, hubris involved in... in it was in, a big in, living in, Wikipedia, isn't it? it we, like, we could just yeah. look all that stuff up now. They couldn't. Yeah, no, but you know, it's, the important thing is to understand, yeah, that here was knowledge, all put in one place. Um, but here were people cooperating and, you know, and people, you know, they were talking along and says that people used to, whenever they, other countries used to encounter each other, it was when they were fighting each other in wars, but here they are coming together peacefully. And it was almost as if war would be abolished and people would just go, Oh, look, I, I want your stuff. Let's trade for it with my stuff. And, you know, that's why it was such a utopian age because people were besotted by this. And it, and it marked, I mean, the 1850, what I was really in, interested in, I sort of collected lots of examples of this were people who look back on the 1850s and said, what a great time to be young. What This was the most exciting decade of the 19th century. And people who hadn't been born there or were very young there regretted not being part of these adventures, the, the, the sense of, of imminent change and possibility and the ability to travel around the world and, you know, and, and see lots of things for the first time. Um, they, 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 the people were, you know, they were sort of besotted by this time. It was a time of huge excitement. I mean, the, and we, we're used to looking at things in terms of decades, around the 60s or the 90s or whatever. As far as I can tell, the 1850s were the first time when people would look back at a block of 10 years and gave it an identity. And that's why I was quite interested in it. So at the end of the decade, the Times looks back to the Great Exhibition from, from 1860 and says, no time has the world changed faster. No time has more parts of the world and places been opened up. No time has prosperity increased so much at such a fast rate. Um, and if you're sort of white, male and British, um, the world was at your feet and there's this tremendous opportunities that the, 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 the people had. Um, so it was no wonder that it, there was such a sort of excitement. That, but it gets, you know, a lot of that kind of that memories of that kind of sense of the 1850s being so fundamental for Britain to do get buried because they're sort of sandwiched between sort of times of more sort of tumult of, um, uh, of the kind of the great events of the, of the 1860s or the sort of the imperial wars and dramas and political um, I think what's interesting the... though as well is like you can talk about you can have the entire world is your oyster if you're white man and British but also if you're dirt poor there's suddenly hope and an out you could go to Australia you could go to America there, there's suddenly like you say the world it doesn't matter what level of society you're at there was reason to be excited there was reason, whether it was an illusion or not. There was a yeah. sort of sense. There was a, there were lots of stories about people going to California or um, 
or um, Melbourne um, in search of gold and, and becoming rich. And the sort of people were kind of alarmed by the world turned on its head in places like Australia, where very poor people or former convicts were sort of riding around in carriages and sort of surrounded by, covered in bling and shouting at sort of richer people who hadn't quite sort of made it so good that, you know, they were the masters now and they would be their servants. And, and there were lots of stories about Oxford and Cambridge graduates going out to make their money and ending up as servants to sort of, you know, rich people. A lot of this, you know, this is not to forget the kind of the the the, the, the misery of the slums of the industrializing cities and the, the impossibility of getting out. But the, the, a lot of people did. And it wasn't just gold. It was the chance to own land in, in America or to, to be part of what I see as the, sort of the, one of the defining characteristics of this time it wasn't the kind of the settler frontier. It was the urban frontier. It was these planting of cities across America and Australia and New Zealand that, that, that people believed in progress. So don't go and start a farm, go and start um, speculating in real estate in a kind of make-believe city in the, in the middle of nowhere, which is what people did. And you had these boom towns and things like that, populated by a lot of British people, but a lot of people from around the world. It's a very kind of cosmopolitan kind of feel of these, these settler societies where people believe that, you know, that, that you, you put plant, plonk your city in there and then the, the railway would come along and make your fortune. All of it ended in complete and utter disaster. But yeah, but there was this idea that that potentially, you know, fortunes were to be made around the world, and 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 pe- people who were sort of lucky enough or had the kind of ability to to pay for a ticket to get out often did very well. But um, but a lot of people did very badly because this is the, you know this was a time of of of, of a slumification of a lot of cities and sort of misery. But yeah, I mean, the hope was there certainly. This was a this was a really really hopeful time. Hopeful, yes, and Britain at the centre of the world, masters of technology, possibly not masters of the universe, though. And there's, event, there's an event in 1859 which messes around with that technology and indeed the Earth's magnetic field. And if it happened today, it could be quite catastrophic yeah. and extremely expensive. What, what was yeah, that? Better hope we don't have one now. Yes, so in, the, in 1859, there was a suddenly... The telegraph started spouting gibberish and some and fire came out of them. Um, and they disconnected the telegraphs from their batteries, but they carried on working. But this this was the result of an, an enormous sequence of solar flares on the sun that introduced the, the, the sun's magnetic field in, in, into Britain. So geo um, magnetism could cause the telegraphs to carry on working. It was this is no one really understood what was happening. People were very terrified by it. The aurora borealis, the northern lights and the southern lights cover most of the world. It could be seen as far south as Hawaii, apparently, and in, down in, in the Caribbean. So the world was kind of, kind of deluged in this kind of incredible northern lights and this kind of um, electrical storm that was going on. If that happened now, that we would have terrible consequences. This was at a time when you know, telegraphs were still in their infancy, so it didn't have such a dramatic consequence. But it was enough to show that, you know, as much as people believe that they had mastered the elements, mastered the world, there were greater forces outside there. And then also this was this sort of marked the kind of the, 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 what I talked about, yeah, the souring of this kind of this immense utopianism. There were the, 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 um, this sort of um, the uh, the um, the idea that the exponential progress and people going and making their fortunes was ruined by a series of financial shocks. This sort of uh, over investment in property bubbles and collapse of confidence, um, things like that. And, a, and, 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 and a much more dangerous international situation of, of wars breaking out of, um, uh, and, and, and more horrific wars because of this technology. The, um, the, uh, the American Civil War is an industrialized war because of these new technologies. And, you know, the, um, this electrical storm 
because it coincides at a time of great kind of um, uh, uncertainty and fear about the future, been very, very different from the from the from the spirit of the Great Exhibition. Suddenly, you know, there's a darker kind of you know complexion is put on the on the solar storm and its consequences because this is suddenly seen as entering a, a sort of a much darker and dangerous and more unpredictable time. So that kind of the the um the, the the sort of unbridled kind of crazy optimism of the 1850s kind of meets its nemesis and then the, the electrical storm is a kind of um kind of almost like a, a symbol of that kind of you know, darker darker time coming a kind of more unpredictable thing that you know maybe maybe you can't control the world maybe you know peace isn't going to break out maybe it is going to go back to you know a more vicious and and, and nastier time of war you know fueled by these these new technologies and sort of the horrendous killing power and command and control of, of, of modern warfare that comes comes on the back of this kind of upsurge in, in technology, like you know, world changing technologies, become um, become instruments of war as they always do. I love that. I just love that that you've had this whole decade of people slapping themselves on the back of man who's really chuffed with himself the world over, and then the universe just says, "Hang on a minute." Hang on a minute. Yeah, nature. Station. <laughs> kind of always, you know. I guess that's the story of human progress, isn't it? You know, this kind of optimism, and then, um, then you crash into the natural limits, and uh, and then you reach nemesis. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been so much fun um, for indulging me and coming on and discussing this. Uh, the book is fantastic. It's called Thank Heyday. Uh, the, what's the subtitle? The Dawn of uh, the Ingust- the Global Age. Yeah, uh, yeah, the making of the global age. I think. Yeah, That's it. yeah. So it'll be on our bookshop page. Um, it is amazing. It's a brilliant sort of snapshot of ten years in time, and I love it. Like you say, there's there's bad times to come. Um, and it really is. It's called heyday because it's the height and it's the best people feel. But it really is such an engaging snapshot of the time, and it's so full of anecdotes and color. Um, I know Lockie's really enjoyed it as well. So thank you brilliant. so much. Thank you so much. It's been great. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.